I had a client that that was looking to invest in property here, and I just called him and said, "Hey, would you invest with me?" And by that, I mean you buy it and me do all the work because I don't have any money. Um, and that's literally the deal that we worked out, you know. And that's a deal that I would encourage anyone if you know someone that has money and you have the time and the know how and and the expertise to get in there to to do the work. Maybe that's a beautiful relationship, and it was a beautiful relationship for for he and I. And it, it turned out to, to be great for everybody involved. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and I hope all of you had a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I know deer season's wrapped up for some of you, and and for the rest of us, sadly, the end is rapidly approaching. So I always like to take this time of year to just reflect on on the past season, Uh, you know, think about what went right and what went wrong and some of the takeaways that that I can incorporate into next season to make sure it's even better and, and more successful. So I hope you're taking time to do some of that yourself, uh, because even though deer season may be wrapping up, that just means that that soon it's going to be time to start working on those habitat projects, uh, to do some postseason scouting. That's going to lead into, you know, shed hunting and eventually some fishing and turkey hunting or, or whatever it is you like to do during those warmer spring and summer months. And then before you know it, you know, we're going to be staring in the face of, of opening day deer season once again. It it goes by fast, guys, and, and the older I get, I find the faster that whole cycle seems to repeat itself. But with deer season winding down, I thought we would shift gears a little bit this week and actually cover a topic that was requested by a listener who reached out to me via email. Uh, this was actually a topic that I had on my list to cover at some point. I just hadn't gotten around to it, uh, but the email was a good prompt to to push me to schedule the interview and cover the topic. So we're going to be talking with my buddy Dave Skinner of Whitetail Properties this week all about the land buying process. So if you, you've ever dreamed of owning your own hunting property or or if you're hoping to buy your first you know property in 2024, then you'll definitely enjoy this episode and get a lot out of it. Uh, Dave covers everything you need to know from from finding that dream property uh, to financing it and and everything in between. So I know you guys are going to want to stick around for that conversation. Hey, but before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by longtime supporter, but fairly new NDA sponsor, The Bearded Buck. Uh, The Bearded Buck is an outdoor entertainment company as well as an outdoor lifestyle brand located in western Pennsylvania and started by NDA friend Jerry Tibbett and his son Austin. So be sure to check out the videos and merchandise those guys have available at thebeardedbuck.com. Hey, and one more thing before we jump on the phone with Dave, Uh, we're headed into the legislative season, both at the national, state, and local levels across the country, and that means lots of hunting and conservation-related legislation is going to be introduced and voted on over the course of the next few months. And if you want to keep up with what's happening in your state and across the nation, and, and that's something you definitely should be keeping up with, uh, head over to our website at DeerAssociation.com and become an NDA member today. Uh, we have a few different options, including a free basic NDA membership which will get you on our email list along with some other perks. But just by by getting on that email list, 
Uh, you're going to get a weekly newsletter from us with our latest content, as well as specific information about wildlife and hunting policy happening in your area or at the national level. And of course, you can always opt out of those emails at any time by clicking the unsubscribe link at the bottom of any of those emails. Uh, but becoming an NDA member is absolutely the best way to stay informed about the latest deer hunting and, and deer management news and information. And guys, with that, let's jump on the phone with Dave Skinner to talk all about buying your first hunting property. Well, hey, Dave, welcome to the uh, Deer Season 365 podcast. I uh, appreciate you taking time out around the holidays here to to come on and talk about hunting properties with me. Brian, thanks for having me. This is uh, actually one of my more favorite podcasts. I really enjoy listening to it, so happy to be a guest. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, before we actually dive into the, the topic of, of hunting land and buying hunting land, can you kick things off by just telling us a little bit about yourself as, as far as your background and, and maybe what led you down this path to, to become a whitetail properties agent? It's a long winding road, um, <laughs> I hear you. But, but a good one. So, um, yeah, I am, uh, uh, I'm originally born and raised in South Carolina, joined the military, moved away and met a pretty little blonde from, from Kentucky and she moved me back here. Um, I guess we've been here now 20, 21 years, I think this coming May, I've been living in Kentucky and, uh, moved back here, was a cop for a while and was, was really just getting into the outdoors when we moved here. I'd, I'd spent a couple of years in Kansas and uh, started deer hunting, um, and, you know, done some upland bird hunting, had done some waterfowl hunting, but I didn't grow up as a hunter. But when I moved here and I really um, immersed myself in it, I guess you'd say, and and become a bit obsessed. And uh, it kind of led to me wanting a career in the outdoor industry. And as we were having kids, you know, trying to provide for family and and and, you know, follow your passions, things things were a bit of a struggle for a while. But eventually I I landed, you know, here, um, and, uh, I've been with, been with whitetail now for going on 12 years. And it, it seems like the blink of an eye to, to be honest with you. Um, it's the longest career I've ever had. Um, I've, I worked for a couple trail camera companies in that time frame. I, I owned a little production company locally here in Kentucky, had a little local TV show, um, for a while and tried to, tried to chase the TV thing and, and realized you really had to have a, a really good product to sell in order to make it on TV back in those days. So I landed on land and, uh, I'm, I was, it was a hard landing, but I'm here and, and things have gotten a little softer as I've, I've gotten older and learned and I've, I feel like I'm where I belong. So. Very cool. Yeah, man. I didn't realize that you had been with them for 12 years either. And, and it's funny how, uh, you know our our paths have been a little different, but uh, yeah, kind of. I've got I've got a similar winding path story that that's kind of it's always been in and out of you know wildlife management and 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 hunting. But uh, yeah, I've been with uh, NDA now for eight years, so I'm kind of kind of landed where I, I need to be, I think. And yeah, it was all, it was all good. A lot of learning experiences along the way for sure. That's what makes us who we are, man. Is all that all those twists and turns in life and and I wouldn't trade any of it uh for anything and and I tell people I, I first applied for whitetail properties in 2007 and uh, I was so dumb and naive I I didn't know what a real estate agent did or or anything and didn't even know they were real estate agents had no clue I just knew they had a cool logo and a 
school TV show and I wanted to be a part of it somehow. And I remember Dan, this is back in the day, Dan was making these personal phone calls to people. And so Dan Perez calls me up and, and we're talking about it. And, and I'm like, well, what's the salary? And he's like, oh, it's commission. And I said, what does that mean? You know, I just didn't know, man. I had only ever punched a time clock. I had never, I had never, um, I say that I was dabbling a little bit as an entrepreneur. I had had a little side business, but never had really made any money, you know, serious money and never had supported myself. And the thought of not collecting a paycheck every Friday or every other week or whatever was so foreign to me. And I I, I actually think I kind of chuckled when he said, well, if you don't sell something, you don't make any money. And uh, that was that was so foreign to me. And, and I think sometimes, man, I wish I would have taken the job back then but I wasn't ready. You know, I needed to learn. Uh, I needed a few more struggles in life. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of glad I didn't take it back then. So, you know, it ended up being, uh, 20, 2011, I think. Um, yeah, around May of 2011 is when I got started. So <laughs> that, man, that, that's kind of funny. I don't want to get, I don't want to get too far off the rails here, but yeah, I, man, I had a similar experience where, you know, I had a interview with, at, well, at the time it was QDMA, a couple of years before I actually ended up, you know, getting hired and working for them. And I, I kind of, I ended up turning the interview down cause I'd just taken the position here in Georgia with the DNR and, and I'd kind of applied for both, you know, at the same time and had already been interviewed and took the job with the DNR and then QDMA called and asked me if I was interested in, you know, being a communications manager and I had to turn them down. And then it's funny, two years later, it, it worked out kind of, kind of similar to, to yours, it was just, uh, you know, wasn't the right time at the time, but it all, all worked out. So, but yeah, let's, again, I don't want to get too far off the rails with that. Let's, let's kind of head into our topic at hand here. And I guess if you would just kind of start us off with, you know, a look at the, the kind of the current state of hunting land, I guess. I know, you know, it seems like lease prices have constantly, you know, been, been on the rise for a while. Uh, public land, you know, seemingly more crowded than ever. It, it, are you seeing an increase in demand for for hunting properties? It seems like every conversation today goes back to the pandemic. And uh, I remember when when the world started shutting down. You know, you start wondering what your what your livelihood is going to be, and you you know you. I, negative thoughts start creeping in your head, and I thought, man, I'm not going to be able to sell any land. You know, people aren't traveling and who knows how long this thing's going to last. And, you know, you just, you just thought you're going to end up bankrupt and lose everything. And that was a thought in my mind. And then, you know, you get, you, you know, land was still selling and you got into 21, uh, into 2021 and man, it just, it turned into a modern day land rush. Land prices just started going through the roof. It just seemed like you could put any price tag on on land, and within a day or two, you're getting a full price cash offer or bidding war or, or something. And for years, you know, I, I sell land here in Kentucky. I'm licensed in Kentucky. I try to keep an eye on the market in, in surrounding states, anyway. You know, and we were always way behind pretty much every state that borders us, except for West Virginia. Our land values were way less than. I'm talking 25%. You know, you could go to Ohio and, you know, rough old hunting land in southeastern Ohio was $3,000 an acre. And here you could buy it for $1,500 an acre. And I just, I never could really figure that out. Same thing with Tennessee. You know, there, it just doesn't seem like I could, I could drive 45 minutes and be in a Tennessee and land was two and three times as much. Southern Illinois, double as much. Missouri, double, triple as much. Um, but that big bump in, 
in 21 or 22 kind of, I won't say it leveled the playing field because those states went up as well, but we got, we got a lot closer, you know, in, in value. So that, that, and, and I say all that to, to lead into the demand for land is high. And, and I say it's like that everywhere, you know, but, uh, and not just hunting land, but just recreational land, getaway, bug out, bug out properties, as some people refer to them, just a place to escape to, whether it's for the weekend or from the zombie apocalypse. You know, I, I don't I don't know what's on people's minds sometimes, but that all affects the, the value and the demand on, on hunting properties because they're one and the same typically. So the demand's high, prices high, seem to be real stable. As as right now, we've not seen any more upward movement. 20, about midway through 22, it, it really started to slow down and, and it seems to be pretty stable right now. And if anything, you know, we may even see things sliding back just a tick. I don't think we're going to see a collapse or a bubble burst or anything like that. But with high interest rates, things have kind of kind of slowed down a little bit. I guess you're seeing a lot more cash buyers, a lot fewer guys going through the bank to buy land right now because of interest rates. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense for sure. And yeah, I've I definitely noticed that here in uh here in Georgia where I'm at, you know, it seems like when we bought our our house here on 15 acres that uh you know, we're probably 3,000 an acre was was kind of average um and then, you know, now it it seems like it's it's double that at least. Um it is definitely definitely increased. And yeah, I remember the the Kentucky land. I mean, even after I'd moved here to Georgia, man, I would I would I would look and drool over those uh, kind of central Kentucky cave area properties. You know, where you like you said, you could still pick up land for fifteen hundred dollars an acre. Um, but when I when I started this, um, I sold several farms. You know, around here for under a thousand dollars an acre, up to about twelve hundred an acre. You know, in the in the beginning, I, I I'll never forget every every time it pops up in my memories in Facebook. I sold a little property over in Ohio County. It was one of the first farms I ever sold, maybe the first. Uh, the first year was really slow in land sales; takes a little while to get established. But one of the first two or three properties I sold over there brought like eight hundred and seventy five dollars an acre. Oh, and, man, um, that that farm today I could probably get three thousand dollars an acre for pretty easy. You know, it's just you know eleven eleven years ago, so it gives you an idea what it's what it's done in that short amount of time. And <laughs> I had a client in twenty nineteen. I've recently had some communication with this gentleman, and uh, I say he's a client. He never did buy anything from me. Um, Everything was overpriced for him. And I, I remember taking him and showing him this one particular property. And it was it was a property that we had we had purchased. It had been on the market for a year and a half or so, and no one was buying it. And the price kept coming down, coming down, coming down. And finally, it got to a point to where it made it really attractive. And it had a road that cut through the middle of it. We could go in and, and you know, split it into some smaller tracks where more people can afford to, to be landowners. Um, you know, 275 acres is a big chunk, even at at a lower price per acre, but we could go in there and make 50 and 70 acre tracks and a lot more people can afford something like that and, and be able to be a landowner and, and, and that sort of thing. So it was one of those tracks. And I think we had it priced at about 1700 an acre. And I remember him just the conversation as vivid as, as this one is with us right now, him saying this land is not worth $1,700 an acre. It'll never be worth $1,700 an acre. And we're in a bubble and it's going to burst and you're going to be able to buy this stuff for $500 an acre. And he was so, he was so matter of fact about it and believed his words so much. 
And if I had that farm for sale today, I could easily get another thousand dollars an acre for it. And that was literally just three or four years ago. So um, today it would be worth twenty seven, twenty eight hundred dollars an acre pretty easily. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know better than me, but uh, I, I just don't see land you know, ever the price ever going down, uh, you know, it's only, it's only going to go up, you know, it might be, it might go up more slowly than it has, but, uh, you know, they aren't, they aren't making any more of it. It's they're probably not going to ever buy it any cheaper than, than what you can today. Uh, historically, historically, it's never gone down over the long term. You know, the way, there's yeah. been some short term bumps in the road for sure that like anything else, but, but when you compare it to things like the stock market, land has always been a much safer investment. Again, a little bit longer term investment, but then you have these crazy bumps in the road every once in a while where things just shoot up, you know, make you look like a genius if you if you owned it beforehand. But, it, you know, people have fought wars over over land since the beginning of time. So it's it's that one thing that is always going to be in demand. It's never going to change as as long as the population is is continuing to increase. It's just going to keep going up and up in value. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm glad. I'm glad I got our place when when I did. Um, I only wish I'd have got more when I got. You know, I wish I'd have approached some of the neighboring landowners about about uh, getting some additional land. But you know, you know, I hear that a lot of times, and and I can remember when I first moved to Kentucky. Um, there were places, Butler County is one of my, one of my favorite counties in Kentucky and, um, the hunting is great over there. There's, you know, pretty good timber value. There's several rivers that run through, you know, it's just, it's just a great, it's a great county. And I remember seeing land selling for five to $700 an acre when we first moved here. And I just, you know, I couldn't afford it. I, I just couldn't. And now I look at it and it's $2,500 to $3,000 an acre. The same exact ground is is that much now. And in 20 years from now, we're going to look back and say, man, I wish I'd have bought every acre I could for $2,500 an acre or $3,000 yeah, an acre yeah. because it's going to be $6,000 an acre or, right. or $7,000 or it's never going to go back. And I tell people that the the best time to buy land was yesterday. Really, because you, you can't go back. But then the second best time is today. It's not going to get any cheaper. And I, I get clients, you know, since interest rates have jumped up there on land, we're looking at eight and a half percent or so. And that's unfathomable to everybody that's been paying three and four percent over the last few years. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it's still a small price to pay uh, when you look at the long term returns on land. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with with you know, in, increased prices and increased demand. I guess the the big question is, are there, are there still some, some good deals to be had out there on, on hunting properties? Can there you are find some hidden gems. Yeah, there, there are. And you know, I tell people, here's a great example. I'm working on a listing right now. I don't know that I'll get it. I hope that I do. And it's just a great raw piece of land. It, it hasn't been hunted in years. It's a, it's an inheritance situation. The family, family inherited it. They don't, you know, they they have an idea what it's worth. They had it appraised. Actually, my estimate was a little bit higher than what their appraisal was. I feel like I could bring them more money, but it's a raw piece of land. There's no trails on it. There's no hunting development on it whatsoever. There is some tillable land. It's got it's got some river frontage. It's a really it's a really scenic, attractive piece of property, but it's not going to bring top dollar because it's not developed. So a guy can come in there and put in some sweat equity, and there's. There's value to be to be made there. There's definitely some forced appreciation there. And that's what we get a lot of times. You know, not every farm I sell is a turnkey, you know, highly developed hunting farm with years of history. Sometimes you got to take a chance on a place and 
and feel like you can create the history, you know, trail cameras and harvest photos and that sort of thing and and get in there and clear some ground for food plots and, and put in some ATV trails and all those things that make a great hunting property. Um, you just got to look for one without that and and find a sensible seller. You know, there's there's a difference in that that turnkey and that raw land. And if the seller's not willing to put forth the effort to turn it into that, he's got to realize he's going to have to take less for his property as well. So there's they're still out there. They're not they're not as common as they were. There's a lot of people doing or trying to do what we do, um, specialize in land. And uh there's a lot of folks out there that that buy and sell off market stuff, you know, and 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 try to do it that way as as well. I think there's some some underhanded tactics that go in with that sometimes, you know, I don't want to get into that, but there, you know, there's definitely some, some backroom deals that happen between grandma after she inherits the farm that, you know, just kind of turn my stomach and oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. buys against those sort of, <laughs> those sort of dealings. Um, but it still happens, you know, uh, definitely still happens. Well, for those, for those listening who, you know, may have made it a, a goal in, in 2024 to, to buy their first piece of ground for hunting. I guess, you know, where do they start? What, how do they, how do they go about trying to find that, that hidden gem of a property? I think the first step that so many people miss out on is, is establishing a budget. And the easiest way to establish a budget is figure out how much cash you can put in. Um, you're not going to buy land with, without cash down. Now, there are ways to get around having cash in your bank account, but I just, I typically say, Hey, if you can't save a 20% down payment, maybe you shouldn't be buying a piece of property. So I, I, I really recommend a guy come to the table with a 20% cash down payment. That's what it's going to take through every bank that I deal with. Rural first, we work with them a lot. They do a 15% down payment as well. Um, but, uh, you're only going to get financed for 15 years with that. Um, so 20% will get you stretched out there to 20 years, get your payments a little bit less and the interest rate difference is, is nominal. Um, so establish that budget based off of your down payment. A couple of ways to get around that cash down payment, um, home equity line of credit. A lot of people do that. I've seen people pull, you know, you've, you, you're established, your kids are off to college now, you've been paying on your home for 20 years and it's worth $400,000 and you owe 120. Well, that's a lot of equity in that house that could be gotten at a, probably a lower rate than what you're going to get against your land. So you could borrow against that um, either to buy the farm outright or as a, as a down payment. And then there's that opportunity if there's timber on a property. Um, I've had several deals. I've even bought land this way myself where I didn't have the cash down payment and use the timber value as that down payment. Typically, you're going to have to have a timber contract at closing. So you that's some some back, um, you know, some some behind the scenes work that's got to go in to make that happen. You need to keep that in mind when you're when you're looking. Um, those type of deals are harder and harder to find. Um, timber is everyone knows now. You know, I, there were guys back, you know, 50, 60 years ago that were buying farms left and right and they're paying for them with the timber. Those kind of deals. I'm not saying they don't exist, but don't call me and ask for one because I'm probably not going to. I'm just not <laughs> going to have those laying around. There's enough investors out there that are jumping on those deals. So, but, but it, it happens. Occasionally you do run across one that has enough timber to m- at least make the down payment. I remember one in particular in Muhlenberg County a few years ago that had, you know, it was a $300,000 farm. There's $100,000 worth of timber on it. You could have e- easily leveraged that for your down payment. So 
again, you got to establish that budget. That is by far step one, because that's one of the first questions I'm going to ask you when you call me. Call me, say, hey, Dave, I'm looking for 100 acres of land. Well, that could run a wide range of price. I'm going to ask you what your budget is first. And if you haven't figured that out, call a banker, call me. I can refer you to some bankers, but get that financing side figured out first. Um, Because odds are, if you don't have that figured out, I'm not even going to show you properties if you call me. I want to know that you're a qualified buyer and you've got that first step out of the way. Um, The second thing is to figure out where. Again, I get folks calling me all the time, say, hey, I want to buy land in Kentucky. Well, Kentucky is a big state. I cannot. <laughs> Mountains or flat land that's, or, that's exactly, or somewhere in between. Yeah. And if you call me and tell me, hey, Dave, I've got an $80,000 budget, please don't think I'm going to drive for three days all over the state of Kentucky showing you properties with an $80,000 budget. You call me with a million dollar budget. Now we'll drive all over the state. You know, that's, it's this, the difference. The juice has to be worth the squeeze for me as well as for you. So, so again, establishing where at in the state. And I tell people all the time, I get people want to buy land in Kentucky because they see the big deer that are killed here. Um, but they've never been to Kentucky. They've never visited. They, they don't know anything about the state. I tell people to come here, bring your family, spend a few days, go visit Mammoth Cave, you know, go, go to Patty's over in Western Kentucky and have dinner, you know, go, go buy LBL and check that stuff out. Go over to Red River Gorge and, you know, all those places, do some touring around here, see what you like, find the area that you like. Cause there's big deer all over the state of Kentucky. There, there, there really are. Um, there's more of them in areas, but you can literally kill a big buck in any County in the state of Kentucky. We definitely have wide varying herd densities. So you get in some of these more mountainous regions in Eastern Kentucky, those, those deer will die of old age because nobody wants to get in them mountains and chase after them. But there are some big old bucks there. There just aren't a whole lot of them where you get over where our new place is in Western Kentucky. It's got one of the highest deer, deer densities in the state. Um, and you're going to easily be able to set in the evening and see 15 or 20 deer over, you know, a nice green field. So determine where you want to be. Um, I'd be glad to help with that. Call me. I'll make recommendations. You know, again, some of my favorite counties are ones that are right here around me. Butler, Grayson, Edmondson, Todd, Logan, uh, Ohio, Muhlenberg counties. Those are all wonderful counties. That's kind of a strip right up that west central part of the state. And, you know, they they haven't quite gotten as popular with with the non-residents as some of the more Western counties, not knocking on Mark Williams territory, but some of those areas over there are saturated with, with non-residents and uh, my territory just hadn't quite gotten to that point yet. So um, anyway, it's, it's getting there, but not quite yet. And uh, um, nothing against non-resident hunters. That is my, that is literally my gravy train is, is non-resident <laughs> hunters. That's who I do most more deals with than anybody. But a lot of times when you get guys coming from out of state, they don't have the same restraints as as local folks do. So you get um, you get into more three year old bucks getting killed than four year old bucks. And, uh, you know, if you're hunting those big deer, sometimes it's better to look, you know, hunt where the non-residents are, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What you know, obviously you mentioned some things there. Obviously, have your have your down payment figured out, uh, kind of have an idea of you know, the area that, that you want to be in as you start, let's say you've, you've chosen those, you kind of, you know, you got your down payment, you know, kind of a general area of, of the state where you want to be in. What I guess are some specific things that you should be looking for in, in a hunting property 
And then we'll get into after this, we'll get into some things to to avoid or look out for. But but as far as things, you know, that you might want to look for in a hunting property, what what would some of those be? The things I get requested most of all are are live water, creeks, rivers, springs, those sort of things. Not every property is going to have those ponds, you know, that sort of thing. Everybody wants that. I, I tell people to sit down and make a list of five or six things and list them in order of of. I got to have down to, I would like to have, uh, if that makes sense. So if you've just got to have live water, well, that may have to take precedence over a place to stay. Excuse me. You may not have living quarters, you know, so, so make that list of things. Um, you know, that's one of the more popular things, you know, clearings already in place for food plots. Um, some folks want a fully turnkey property. I, you know, I advise against that. Um, there's not a whole lot of them out there and you're going to pay a premium for it. Um, and who wants to, it's, it's kind of like wearing another guy's pants, you know, who wants to do that? I want to go in and pick out my own, you know, determine where I want my own food plots and my stands and those sort of things. So I put, I put way less emphasis on those turnkey properties over the raw stuff. Um, because I know what I can do with a bulldozer and, and chainsaw and, and some, some sweat equity. Um, but yeah, some of those things, you know, that, that most people are looking for some, somewhere to stay running water or, or some sort of water feature on the property. Um, hunters put a huge emphasis. Everyone puts a huge emphasis on that. And the water is the, you know, source of life for so much stuff. So it's, it's a big one. Um, decide, you know, are you, are you willing to buy a property that doesn't have any road frontage? And that's a, that's a big one. Some folks do not want to deal with a, with a legal deeded easement. However, I'm of the opinion, if I'm buying property that's strictly for hunting purposes, I don't want road frontage. Why would I want road frontage where people can drive by and possibly see what I've got, especially if you're talking smaller acreage. So, you know, buying something that maybe is off the beaten path and and out of the way of, of County road frontage and, and traffic, you know, cause no matter where you go, you're going to, you're going to have road hunters. And if you can avoid that road frontage, sometimes on a, just a, you know, an all out and out hunting property, getting off the, off the main road is, is a benefit. Um, and, a lot of folks put a lot of emphasis on past history. They want to see those trail camera photos and and harvest photos and things like that. And I would say less than 20% of my listings I have that on. I sell them all, but for whatever reason, those ones that have that past history are going to be the first to go. They're going to bring the most money um, and and have the highest demand. Uh, I think folks that put too much emphasis on that are missing the boat and they're probably spending more money than they had to. Again, it's been rare. You know, I, I've owned several farms over the years um, since I've been doing this and, and leased other properties and, and had permission on other properties. It's it's really been rare that I couldn't go in and and find a, a good deer. I'm not saying, you know, 180, you know, or anything like that, but but good quality deer on just about every property I've ever had access to. I, I can't, sitting here, I can't think of a property that I've never had a good deer on, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So just to see someone else's trail camera pictures or the deer that they killed, it adds nothing to it for me, for me personally. But I have buyers that absolutely won't buy a property without that history. I, I kind of like the unknown of going in and, and and learning that on my own. So I would advise against putting so much emphasis in that. But if that's important to you, we'll we'll find you one, you know, like that. So, um, again, a lot of people, a lot of people looking for that. Um, 
and just overall, um, you know, decide whether or not mineral rights are important to you. Um, minerals are kind of a, a touchy subject, and I, 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 I fear to even talk about it. It's kind of like timber. It's kind of like timber rights. It's rare we come across a property that the seller is retaining timber rights. It does happen. My personal farm, uh, when I bought it in the beginning, I didn't have timber rights. Um, they, the, the previous owner kept those. They were in the middle of cutting timber. So that is definitely a question to ask. It's not something to get hung up on because it's pretty rare. And I'm going to tell you if you're not getting the timber rights. Mineral rights are different, though. The problem with mineral rights is they very well could have been severed from the property 100 years ago. Uh, and without going through a lengthy, very expensive process of searching the mineral title to determine if you even own those mineral rights, there's no way for me to tell you, yes, you own the mineral rights or no, you don't. Even the current landowner may not know. Uh, I've never done a mineral title search for any of the land I've ever bought. The farm I own now, the farm that we own together uh, with a group of buddies over in Western Kentucky, I don't know that we own the mineral rights on it. I think we do, but I don't know that for certain. However, what I do know is there's no active oil uh, oil or coal leases currently. Um, that's probably the more appropriate question rather than just do I own the mineral rights? Because if there's no current production going on, meaning there's no oil wells, there's no there's no one there stripping, you know, for coal or whatever, that's that's a. Uh, that's a bigger that's a bigger consideration um, if if that makes sense. So if we ride around the property, there's no oil wells. Odds are um, there's there's no oil lease, and odds are no one's going to come knocking on your door looking for those for those minerals. It's just not a concern for me. It is for some folks, and I've lost deals over it in the past when I tell when I explain that to folks. I can't guarantee it unless you do the title search. So that's definitely a consideration for some people. I don't think it matters to most. Um, we just sold. go ahead. I was just going to say, what, what's I guess the worst case scenario there? I mean, if you don't own the mineral rights, <laughs> have you heard of any instances where that's come back to bite somebody? Or I mean, what? I, I guess have, I have not personally heard of any stories that I felt like were true. I've heard some crazy stories, but I, it's it's not. I, I don't think it's as big of a deal as it was sixty or seventy years ago. When when people are hiding these sort of things. And again, you know, there's our, our former president pretty much shut down the coal industry here. No one is opening up new coal mines. So even if you know you don't own the coal rights, no one is coming in to open up a new coal mine. Gas and oil is a little bit different. Um, I've not seen anyone drilling a new oil well in, in some time. I'm not saying they aren't. But if you if you go onto the property and there's a pump jack you can pretty much know that at least there has been some sort of an oil lease. And then you can start looking for that stuff. And in, in recent times, if that pump jack is working and then the roads are well worn, then you can guarantee there's an oil lease. While you may, the mineral rights may transfer to you. You're not going to have any control over that. And those folks can come and go to tend to those oil leases as, as they, as they deem necessary. Sometimes it's a good thing. Our, our farm that we sold last year, the previous, I think we'll get into talking about the Buck Factory a little bit later. I don't want to get off offline too much, but the previous Buck Factory, um, it had gas wells on it 
and some of the best maintained gravel roads throughout that property uh, of anywhere I've been. And those folks came and went as they pleased, but it never had a negative impact on us. If anything, it was a positive because they maintain our roads for us. And to maintain a, a gravel road network throughout a property is not a cheap thing. Um, no. You know, so that that was a plus. I have seen problems, you know, with 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 oil companies, but typically they know when opening weekend of gun season is, they don't, they don't want to get shot no more than you don't want them there disturbing your hunting. You know, they know when to stay out and when not to, they're not idiots, but for the, for the most part, when there's, when there's oil rights or there's an oil or gas lease or something active on the property, unless there's a substantial amount of income coming to the owner, typically that's going to lower the price of the property um, because you have to put up with that. So again, if you're looking to get in property that's going to be priced lower, maybe buying something with mineral rights on it is is a way or no mineral rights or with an oil lease might be a way for you to get property cheaper. Um, same thing with like old strip mine coal ground. I can promise you if you buy strip mine ground, former strip mine ground, like Peabody sells off land routinely in Western Kentucky, you will not own any of the mineral rights. And there's tens of thousands of acres of that stuff over there. No one's coming in for any more coal. It's all gone or it's not worth coming after. There may be a gas or oil lease or something on there, but you're going to be able to buy that stuff for a third of what, you know, half, a half to a third of what similar price property with the minerals or or that has been unclaimed. So it's a, it's a way to get in more acres or to get the number of acres you want for less money. So it's it can be a benefit. Just depends on how you look at it. Okay. Well, that's good. I've, you actually hit on uh, the next thing I wanted to cover was some some things to look out for uh, potential, you know, <laughs> stumbling blocks. And uh, you, you touched on the mineral rights there. That was something I was going to have you discuss. Uh, and you kind of touched on um, another one I was going to bring up was the whole, you know, deeded access. You know, I know that that seems to be a, a concern for people sometimes. Like you said, not having road access. What would a, a potential land buyer need to know? I mean, what do they need to check into with that access and what, what are some potential issues? Just what, what do they need to look out for, I guess, if they're buying something that doesn't have direct road access? So here's the here's the big thing about access. If you're going through a bank, they're going to require you to do a title search. All right. I'm going to recommend you do a title search, whether you're going through a bank or not. And that legal access is going to is going to be a point of, of attention. They're, they're going to determine whether the property has legal access. Most of the time, I'll know. There have been instances where I've represented a buyer on a, someone else's listing. It wasn't my listing and I didn't know. Uh, and I just let the title company do their job. That's that's what they're for. And they're going to they're going to be able to look through the deeds and determine has the access ever been recorded or does it even need to be recorded? There are there are instances where. Uh, an access or, or roadway into a property has has been established for so long. It's historically known as the access, and you can get clear title on that, and and even have that insured, uh, meaning that the title company will cover you if anyone were to ever come back and say in the future, "Oh no, that's not your access," and they try to block you off from. It. At least you've got some legal recourse there, uh, and some and some assistance from from your title insurance. So. Those are all questions you're going to ask during that process once you once you're doing your title work. Now, again, if it's my listing, typically I'm going to know because I've done the done a little bit of research um, to determine 
can I find a deed that record has recorded that access? That's that's the big thing. Is it recorded somewhere? And if it isn't, what are the other underlying issues? And sometimes I've even had even before I list a property, I've done preliminary title on it where I've paid someone to go in and research that title to determine what is the what is the the background of this road. And one property in particular a few years ago that I sold. Uh, it it had a long a long access road that went back into it. I think it was nearly a mile long, and I don't remember all the details of it. But but basically, there had been a lawsuit years back, and it, there was a judgment that said, "Hey, this is the access to this property." So we were able to record that with a new deed that just showed future owners, "Hey, here's here is what gives you legal access." There was a judge that gave this, you know, whatever year, you know, there wasn't a. There wasn't a survey to define it, but it was a well-established road. Um, so th- those are, you know, they're can run the gamut. I mean, I, I've seen access up a creek before, you know, where, where there was no, not even a road. You had to drive up the middle of the creek. However, that had been surveyed and was recorded in the deed. And that was the legal access was you turned off of a, off of a gravel road up the creek bed and you drove for half a mile up the creek bed and then you're on the property. Um, so again, just, just, Ask your agent, um, you know, to to give you some some sort of uh, uh, legally recorded documents um, or a reason why it's not been legally recorded. Some of these old, you know, there are some old maps out there, and this is where a surveyor comes in handy, probably even more than me. But I've seen surveyors be able to justify access because there once was a road there, and that was the only access to the property. Once that road went away, it's still there. It's still being used. It's just no longer being maintained, and that was the legal access to the property. And I, I get it. Those type of properties aren't for everybody. But again, road frontage adds value to property. So if you're trying to get more acres at a, at a certain budget, or you're just trying to get into a smaller budget, sometimes those properties without road frontage can can add, you know, you can add acres for the same kind of money um, because they're going to be less money than something with a mile of road frontage. You know, anytime you've got long road frontage, that's a property that maybe has some development potential um, or those acres along the road have more value because you can build houses on them and things like that. Uh, a couple of things to look out for when you're when you're not dealing, you know, with with road frontage tracks, and it's something maybe with a long easement access uh, is is utilities. Um, just because you have an easement that is that is uh, dictated as an ingress egress easement does does not mean that you're allowed to run utilities along that easement. Uh, it needs to state that it's a utility easement as well. So just keep that in mind if you're wanting to put a cabin or something on there, and you want the, all the all the modern amenities, electric, running water, and those sort of things, you may not be able to get that along your easement without securing another easement for those for those utilities. So that is definitely a concern if, if that's an issue. So just keep that in mind. Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. Good to know. Any, any other, I guess, uh, potential? Well, I guess first, if you do have if you do have a deeded easement, I mean, if it's recorded indeed, that that is that perpetual. I mean, you don't have to worry about you know somebody coming. 40 years later and saying that's no, that's no yeah. longer so again it's it's a, i'm not an attorney I, i'll tell people right now I definitely i'm not an attorney not near smart enough for that uh, but i would you know your, your agent whether that's me or someone else can can help you find a good title attorney to to look at that verbiage and okay. that easement and and determine because i have seen easements that were that were granted um, more like a license. I think that's the legal term for it. It's a temporary thing, or maybe it's granted to one person. 
but typically they do run with the property and that means they're perpetual. So as, as that property gets passed on, even if you were to split it, um, later on, uh, it, it runs. I saw one one time that was, um, to the landowner and their heirs. Um, so, and not the way that, the way that typically would be, would be read in legal ease would be, you know, to that landowner and or their assigns, I believe is the way they said, meaning anyone they assign it to could use that easement. Not always is that the way it's written. So again, I, I saw one once that was just to the, that landowner and their heirs, meaning if you weren't their heir and you bought the property, that easement would not be granted to you. So it's definitely something you should look at. It's not very common. Typically, it's assigned to that property and not a person. Okay, gotcha. Sounds like the, the main take home here is to to get that title search done then and and let them figure out exactly uh you know what what you have i guess as far as access legal there access are, there are folks out there that would not buy an easement access property if it was the last property on earth they are just dead set against it what's really interesting about that is the county road you drive on is an easement it's so that that's that's the funny thing it's just a different type of easement it's it's like um um utility right away through your property i have people that are dead set against those because they think for some reason a utility easement is public land or or it's you don't own the land anymore you still own that land um the difference is the utility company now has right away there to to maintain their their uh, their property, the the utility lines or whatever that is, whether it's a gas line, a water line, an overhead power line, whatever, it's just a right of way, and it's no different with an access right of way. It's or access easement. It's just a right of way. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I, I remember when I was working on a, a WMA, a WMA there in Kentucky. It, it was a core core of engineer property, and it was a, a lake property, and of course had a, a lot of old roads that that went down into. Uh, into the lake, which were, had become, you know, accesses to the, the hunting land around it and gated accesses. And, uh, we, we lost a couple of those or, or the fish and wildlife lost a couple of those accesses along the way, just because the landowners deemed that that road hadn't been maintained. Um, and, and so, yeah, they actually, we, we could no longer use those as public access because I think the landowner owned property on both sides of the road mm-hmm. and uh, again, deemed that it hadn't been maintained in any way. Um, not that it really needed to be maintained for just a, a parking area, but anyway, I do remember that. So yeah, well, and, some crazy and, and stuff. Like, that and, goes on. and again, that makes sense because that landowner owns that road. They're utilizing the road for themselves. And if the general public is utilizing it, there's wear and tear on that road. There absolutely is expense in maintaining any road. If you're going to maintain it to any level, that may be grading it every five years, or it may be having to put two loads of gravel on it every year. You, you never know. So I can, un- I can understand that, you know, and, and again, that's something when you're dealing with easement properties, who maintains it? Somebody's got to take care of it. And that's not most of the time that's not defined. Um, it's got to be off of a handshake deal or, or hopefully, you know, the neighbors are kind enough to lend in on the maintenance of that. But in, in the end of it, if you're at the end of that road and you need to utilize it and there's no maintenance agreement out there, just keep in mind that that may fall back on you. Um, you may be the guy that has to maintain it uh, because someone's granted you access across their property. Um, the, it's not their job to to provide you with the road. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, obviously, with with some properties, 
there there are opportunities to recoup some of the expense of purchasing. You already you know talked about uh, the timber timber value timber harvest on the property. I, any other I guess potential sources of, of property income worth worth discussing there, looking at as a potential buyer. Probably the the one that comes to mind first of all is is farmland. Um, you know us as us as deer and turkey hunters, we we love some row crops. A lot, of, a lot of people think you can't grow a big deer unless you got soybean fields. But uh, if you're if you're fortunate enough to to find a piece of property, you know you're looking for recreational land, and you can find something that has a percentage of of row crop land. That's that's a great source for income. Um, you know, depending on where you're at, that that ground could rent to a farmer anywhere, the tillable ground anywhere from a low of probably seventy five dollars an acre up to, you know, here in Kentucky. $250, an acre, depending on the region you're in and, and the value, you know, the quality of that, that tillable ground. So there's definitely, there's definitely income to be considered there. Um, you're probably not going to make a mortgage on a hunting farm from tillable income. You know, I don't even think you could do that on an all tillable farm. However, it's a, it's a nice little, a little bit. So, you know, typically the, the type of stuff that I'm selling you know, a guy buys 80 acres and 80 acres and he's got 15 or 20 acres of, of tillable ground. So he's going to get enough, probably covers taxes and maybe plant a couple of food plots or something. You know, it's, it's not going to be a huge income, but definitely some value in that. And then you get the food source as well. And that definitely a benefit there. But there's all kinds of different sources of income. Like we mentioned, timber. Um, one of the things that we've really gotten into pretty heavily and and you may be able to speak to this more than I can, but the EQIP program, which is a federal federal funded uh, habitat, um, not just habitat, but um, it is definitely wildlife oriented. Um, and I don't even know what that EQIP the acronym stands for. Environmental Quality Incentive Program, maybe I think is what it is. Um, but anyway, there are, there's tons of federal money out there. To, to do things that we're going to do to our properties anyway. Hinge cutting is a big one. Timber stand improvement, meaning you may not you may not be ready for a timber harvest, but you can hire a forester, come in, write a timber management plan, and then Uncle Sam will write you a big fat check once you go in and, and implement this forest stand improvement. And that may be hack and squirt where you're removing invaluable trees or girdling trees or even, like I said, hinge cutting. Um, and that stuff can be pretty lucrative. Uh, I don't hold me to this number, but I think some of that pays six or seven hundred dollars an acre um, for for some of that forest stand improvement stuff. And it even goes as far as if you know, if you've got some some rough fields that you want to plant in pollinators, you know, they, there's a pretty good contract there uh, where you can plant, you know, native native forbs and wildflowers and, and those sort of things that are definitely beneficial to wildlife. So you can get some money from money from those things. Uh, I'm not an expert on it by any means a group of us own a little habitat business on the side and our, our biologist, uh, Philip Sharps, 30 something years with, or nearly 30 years with Kentucky Fish and Wildlife. He is an expert, uh, in equip and he, he can come in and, and write you out a plan and, and point you towards the, the programs that will, that you will qualify for or, or should qualify for and, and get you that information on and how to get applied for that. And, you know, I've, I've seen some of my clients get, pretty good pretty good checks for that even like patch clear cuts that's a, that's another one we're actually implementing some of that on on our property they're getting ready to get started next month uh, we've got some pine and sycamore plantations that 
just aren't really beneficial for anything. And, and, um, equip programs paying us pretty good money to go in and clear cut those and then just walk away from them. And uh, a couple of years down the road, it's going to be phenomenal habitat, way better, offer way more for wildlife than what it is now. And, uh, we'll, we'll make a little money off of that. So those are probably some of the, some of the bigger ones. Um, one thing that, that I've kind of gotten into here in the last few years, um, if you've got a, it's, it seems crazy enough, but I've got a client right now that just built a cabin on his farm. I sold him a few years ago and he's making twenty twenty five thousand dollars a year putting that thing on his little cabin on Airbnb. He's got a little pond out in front of it. He lets people come and stay there for the weekend and and they fish and they rent their cabin out and make make really good money. So if you've got if you've got some sort of a, a draw, don't don't overlook that. Um, I think that industry is down a little bit because of the economy right now, but I. I just feel strongly it'll be right back to where it was as soon as things kind of turn around. Um, but it's definitely something, you know, you, you've got a, um, an out of state hunting property with a cabin on it. It's sitting empty 10 and a half months out of the year. You're not utilizing it. Why not let someone rent that place out and, and earn a little income off from off of it. So uh, oh, yeah. definitely, definitely a benefit there. And there's other things too. Um, I sold a farm not long ago that, he had sold carbon credits on his property. I think it was about $5,000 a year. They were paying him not to cut his timber. Uh, he wasn't going to cut the timber anyway. And uh, so looking at looking to carbon credits, as crazy as that sounds, um, he had the check stub to prove it. And uh, I don't know that every property qualifies for it, but it's definitely something to look into. Again, you're not going to pay for the property, but uh, that may make a payment or two. You know, you never know. So, yeah, every, every little bit helps. Every little That's bit helps. Sure. Going back to, you know, what you said earlier in our discussion about, um, you know, buying the property and, and you had used the, uh, the the timber value as your down payment. Now, at what point, I guess, did you get a forester or timber cruiser involved? I mean, did you just bring one with you when you went and looked at the property initially and, and where he could kind of give you a, a value of the timber? or How did that work? So there's a couple of ways to, to go about that. So, and, and keep in mind, you're not using the timber value. You're using the timber. You have to conduct the timber sale because the bank is going to want that money. Um, I'm not saying they won't take in consideration the timber value there um, that, that may increase the value of the property. Um, and, and if it happens to be above and beyond the purchase price, that may lower your 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 down payment, if, if that makes sense. In other words, let, let's use real simple numbers. You're buying a property that's, you know, the, the purchase price is $100,000. Um, and because of the timber value, the property appraises for $120,000. The bank may take some of that, depending on who the bank is, they may take some of that um, as, as a down payment. However, what I was referring to earlier is you buying a farm for $100,000 and to the landowner, there's $20,000 in timber value there. So you have to sell the timber and utilize that $20,000 as your down payment. And in that situation, there's a couple of ways of doing it. We've we've got some really good relationships with with foresters as, as well as some loggers. And what we have done in the past is we've just sold on shares directly to, to the logger. Um, and they came in and cut that, uh, they wrote us a check at closing. We turned right around and gave that check to the bank as our down payment. 
So to make that process work, you've got to kind of know in the beginning what you're doing. And when you write your purchase agreement, um, you're going to tell me or I'm going to tell you, hey, look, we need to put in a due diligence period long enough to get someone in here to get a value on this timber. Uh, I always recommend working with a forester, if at all possible, uh, to conduct a, you know, a, a proper timber harvest and not just go and whack and stack, but take the trees that need to be taken. Um, and leave what needs to be left, if that makes sense. And they they know how to how to mark that timber for the, for that kind of a sale. So uh, you're going to have some out of pocket expense. It's kind of like doing a home inspection on a house. You go to buy that house. You've got a certain period of time to conduct your home inspection. You have to pay for that home inspection, whether you purchase the property in the end or not. If if the roof is caving in and the home inspector says, you know, it's going to cost, you know, or the home inspector says, hey, you need a new roof. Seller won't put on a new roof. You won't you won't pay for the new roof and you walk away from it. Well, you're out the money you spent on the home inspection. It would be the same thing with a timber crew. So you you've got this piece of property and and me or whoever your agent is says, hey, there's there's a substantial timber here, or maybe you're smart enough to look at that timber and say, hey, man, there's a lot of white oaks here. Wonder what that's worth. So you go ahead and make an offer on the property, um, and that offer, you know, let's say it's you know a hundred thousand dollars, and you ask for twenty one days of due diligence. And that means you can do any inspections you want. And one of those inspections is going to be a timber crew. So you're going to then hire a consulting forester to come in and look at that timber and and give you a value on it. And they're going to tell you, yeah, you know, a, a well-marketed sale here would would bring um, X amount of money. And then you make the determination if you want to sell that timber and you would literally sign a contract with a timber company prior to even owning the property. Um, and at closing, you know, you need to dictate in there, hey, I'm purchasing this property on such and such day, I'm going to own it and you will pay me X. And then you just hand that check right over to your banker. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You just kind of, I guess, got to get everything timed just right. Got, but yeah, you yeah. got to get everything timed in and, and I just not, not to toot my horn, but that's where, that's where hiring a land specialist comes in handy because I've done this long enough. I've, I've got those contacts. I know the phone numbers to call to, to make something like that happen within, within the, the allotted time. Uh, it's no different than doing a, you know, a survey or, or any other type of inspection. You know, if you're buying a, if you're buying a house lot, typically those are contingent upon, some inspections. One of those inspections would be a, a perk test for a septic system, for example. This is no different than that. It's just um, you don't even have to tell the seller what you're doing. Uh, it's, it's really none of their business. You know, if you want to tell them, that's fine, but you don't have to. Um, you're just conducting inspections that could be, you know, a, a, a water, you know, you could be testing the water quality or, or whatever, you know. Okay. Gotcha. And then as, as far as financing, and you've touched on a, a good bit of this, particularly the, you know, the 20% down in most cases, what else, I guess, can you tell us as, as far as the financing process is, are these just typical, you know, 30 year type mortgage or what, what, what do they, what would a yeah. new yeah. property purchaser need to know about the financing process? So there's a couple a couple of financing routes you can take on land. It's it's not like buying a home. You're not going to get 30-year fixed rates with low down payment. I don't know why because in my opinion land is a safer investment than a home. Uh that home you can destroy it. It's really hard to destroy 100 acres. You know what I mean? I could literally yeah. buy a house today and go in tomorrow and just destroy the value of that home really simple. However, the bank will loan the, the government has set it up to where a bank can loan a first-time homeowner money to buy a house and nearly 100% of it. 
Um, you're not ever going to do that with land. I don't, I don't know why, but that's just not the way it is. Um, so, so with land, you're going to have to have that down payment, regardless of what bank. I've yet to find a bank that will do land loans without a down payment. The difference, I guess, I, I guess it's possible if you are buying a property so far below market value that the bank felt they were safe. They do, you know, for example, you're you're buying a farm that appraises for a half million dollars, and you're buying it for three hundred thousand. There may be a bank out there that would loan you the 300,000 to, to buy that. But most of the banks are still going to ask for the 20% down, even though there's so much equity on the front end. Uh, and not to get too far off the weeds, one thing you can do if you do buy a property way below market value like that, you could refinance it sometime in the future and pull your down payment back out of it. Um, uh, that's that's possible. It's really weird that you can do that. But on the front end, they're going to require that they're going to require that down payment. So you've got a couple of options, and I'll, I'll refer this to like a big national ag lender versus a local local bank. So let's talk the big national ag lender, and the ones I'll use are Farm Credit and Rural First because they're they're who we have around here and that I'm most most familiar with. So Rural First is is set up as a as a recreational land lender. They also loan on homes on acreage. I don't know that they do just a home on a corner lot. I'm not sure they do that, but I, I think it's mostly land. They're looking to loan on rural acreage. And they basically, they have three basic packages. They have a 15% down 15-year note, 20% down 20-year note, 25% down 25-year note. Um, so as you go up in, in loan term, you're going to have to increase that down payment. The great thing about them is that is a fixed interest rate for the full time of that loan. And I just recently learned, this is what's amazing, is if if the rates drop for five hundred dollars and I think once a year you can adjust your you can adjust your rate down. So if I put you on a piece of property today and rural first loans you the money and six months from now rates drop a point, you can call up Joe Lyons as my guy here at Rural First and say, Hey Joe, I just saw rates drop. Let's let's activate a, a rate reduction for $500, they redo your loan. And in five minutes, you're signing paperwork to, to drop your interest rate um, if, if rates drop. So, man, farm credit is the same way. Uh, they, they'll do the exact same thing. So farm credit is more of an ag lender. They're, they're loaning, you know, cattle farmers money to buy, to buy, you know, pasture land, or they're, they're loaning ag, uh, an ag farmer, or a grain farmer money to buy as, you know, row crop land. However, I have seen them loan on other properties. I've had several clients use farm credit in the past, but there's going to have to be some sort of, some sort of either crop land or, or pasture ground or something before they're going to loan to you. They're not, they're not loan on a 40 acre hunt track that, that doesn't have, you know, that, that ag side to it. That's where Rural First comes in. So, so Farm Credit Rural First, you're getting long-term fixed interest rate financing. All right, your local lender, and let me back up and talk about them again. They are they're very strict on credit score. You're going to have to have an impeccable credit score. You're going to have to have impeccable credit. You're going to have to have good good income, and you're going to have to have a a a good debt to income ratio. What all those numbers are, I don't know. You have to call them to get those specifics. But let's just say you need to be a strong buyer, a very strong buyer to use rule first and and farm credit. 
Now let's talk about your local your local banks. This is um, you know I'll use some examples around here uh, that that I use: Farmers Bank and Trust, Bank of Edmondson County, um, South Central Bank. Those are some of your more local local banks. They have one to let's say five offices. You're going to walk in and and you're you know you're going to get to know your loan officer by first name. There's going to be two or three little tellers in there. Yeah, that's a small bank. They will. They they have more flexibility. Uh, the rules and regulations for farm credit and real first are are very strict. They don't have a whole lot of flexibility. But these local banks, um, sometimes they've got a bank bank president, a loan officer, and that's it. You know, there's not a whole lot to no not a whole lot of hoops, and they've got a lot of say in what they can and can't do. Um, however, what they will not do is a 25 year fixed interest rate loan. They can't afford to do those kind of loans. They will do a, a shorter term or an adjustable rate loan on on your land. Um, and typically, their down payments are going to be fifteen to twenty five percent, depending on the bank. And you may get fixed rates anywhere from two to seven years. Um, seven years will probably be kind of long. I, there is a local bank around here I've I've seen do a fifteen year. I don't I don't deal with them a whole lot. I don't know a whole lot about that. But most of the local banks I deal with are doing two to two, three, four, five, six, seven years fixed rates. And at the end of that, you can you'll just adjust your mortgage to whatever the current mortgage is um and and go on down the road if, if that makes sense. So um uh, their their loan processing fees are usually less than those big national ag lenders. Uh typically they're less anyway. Um, meaning that your closing costs are, are going to be less. However, you just don't have that, you don't have that fixed interest rate and they're not going to adjust your rate. So you buy today at eight and a half percent and, and we get a 1% drop in, in rates next quarter. Not likely to happen, but if it did, you're stuck paying the eight and a half percent or you're going to refinance, meaning you're going to have to, you know, pay all those closing costs again and, and go through the whole loan process again. So those are your two the two main options, I'd say national national lenders and then, and then a local bank, but both of them are going to require a down payment. Um, again, to get around that, I think I mentioned earlier, there's there's ways of getting around that and a home equity line of credit is one. And I sell land to a lot of people that use their home home equity line of credit to buy land or, or they refinance their home and they pull that equity out um, and use that cash then to buy land. So they're as strong as a cash buyer at that point because they're walking in the closing table with, you know, not literally cash, but they, they have cash to buy with. Gotcha. All right. Well, I guess is there still, and you kind of, well, I guess hinted to this a little bit earlier when you're talking about buying, buying raw land without, you know, the improvements for hunting, but it, is there still room out there? Or I don't know about still, is there room out there, I guess, to purchase a, a property, you know, put in the sweat equity, like you talked about to make it a, a true hunting property and then turn around and, and selling it for a profit or, you know, maybe you could start with a smaller property and, and work your way up to a larger acreage. Is, is that viable? It is. Um, and I, I will say that with interest rates the way they are right now, it, it makes it a lot harder. And, you know, let's say that land is still appreciating, appreciating at a couple of percent a year, but you're paying eight and a half percent. It's really hard to, to keep up with that and to have a true net return on the end. So you, you got to look at that interest as, as an expense 
along the way. And if your property is only appreciating natural appreciation at a couple percent, well, you're going backwards by 6% each year. Does that make sense? So you've, yeah, you've yeah, got to figure does. out some way to force that appreciation. And there's there's lots of ways of forcing appreciation. You know, you can, you know, if you're, if you're good on heavy equipment, you can rent a dozer, you can hire it out, whatever, come in and clear clear ground. Open ground's always worth more than timbered ground unless that's really good timber. Um, so if you're, what I tell people, if you're looking to, if you're looking to flip property, start looking at the stuff nobody else wants. And, and, and this is, this was how I made my first successful flip. I bought a piece of property that literally had set on the market for over a year. Um, they were asking too much money for it when it was on the market. Nobody wanted it. You couldn't even, I mean, when we were walking it, I was walking it with a landowner. I mean, you couldn't get around on it. You had to walk it. I'd much rather been riding around in my buggy, but it was, there was no way to, to get around on it. And it was so thick and overgrown and just a, just a mess. There was nothing appealing about the property. However, I could see that there was, there was a diamond there in the rough. I just had to, I just had to carve away the coal basically to get to, get to the diamond in the heart of that. Um, and so that's what I tell people, find that stuff that's been on the market for a long time and, and a set there. And, and there's a reason why somebody don't want it and fix that. So you buy a problem with a, a property with a problem and fix the problem. And that may be access. That may be, and by access, I mean, literally you, you could clear up an access issue if a property doesn't have any legal access you buy the property and and fix that now that may take some time and money and some sweet talk but there i've seen people be very successful at at you know fixing those type of problems or the other access is you know trails being able to get around on the property opening up some food plots or putting in water source like a pond or or whatever but that but that sweat equity um and i mentioned earlier about that deer history no matter how many times i tell people don't get hung up on deer history they're going to get hung up on deer history so by buying a piece of property hunting it for a couple years and enjoying it and realizing there's value in that enjoyment as as well and and collecting that history the trail camera history and cataloging those trail camera pictures so you can go through and and show a potential buyer you know by year the type of bucks you've had and the bucks you harvested and and those sort of things the fact that there's you know good turkey population on on the property and you know those sort of things add add value so there's absolutely there will always be opportunities out there for people to flip land. How easy is it going to be? You're probably not going to be able to call me up and say, "Hey Dave, I want to buy 50 acres and sell it next year so I can buy 100." That's not reasonable. Um, however, Come on, Dave, I know, I know. if it was that easy, if that if it was that easy, that's all I would do. Uh, trust me, it's not that easy. However, if you if you spend time shopping around, you will find properties. I'll give you a good example, man. We bought a property about a year and a half ago. I'm not going to name the county. I'm not going to give away a whole lot of details. But this farm was listed with a residential real estate agent, had been on the market for quite some time. It was it was a fairly large property and it was a, it was a big purchase price. Um, however, been on the market for a long time. And we made an, an offer, you know, that that they couldn't refuse because they just weren't getting any offers. You know, it is set there and set there and set there. Part of the problem was they just had an agent that was in over his head, I think, with with that size of a piece of property and what it consisted of. So we were able to go in there and buy it, clean it up, put in some trails, put up some some nice blinds, get some deer pictures, that sort of thing. 
We sold it a little over a year later, you know, made a decent return. It didn't make anybody rich, but we made a good return and we turn, we, we benefited that property so much. And now the folks that own it love it. You know, it's, it's, it, they would have never bought it before we come in there, but now they were willing to come in and buy it because it was that more turnkey type property. So they exist. And back to the first property that I ever bought, um, I bought that with a partner. Talk about, talk about figuring out creative ways to finance. I had a client that that was looking to invest in property here, and I just called him and said, hey, would you invest with me? And by that, I mean, you buy it and me do all the work because I don't have any money. Um, and that's literally the deal that we worked out, you know, and that's a deal that I would encourage anyone. If you know someone that has money and you have the time and the know-how and, and the expertise to get in there to, to do the work, maybe that's a beautiful relationship. And it was a beautiful relationship for, for he and I. And it, it turned out to to be great for everybody involved. The seller was tickled to death that someone bought the property that loved it, and I did. Man, it was it was a it was one of the best experiences of my life buying that first piece of property. And for the next year, I was up there every waking hour that I had, you know, putting time in and killed a great deer on the property. You know, had a great time. Two seasons, I ran trail cameras on it, got some great pictures of great deer and. Um, when that property went on, actually, it never even went on the market. When we priced it, it was it was one of the highest priced properties to ever sell in that county. Now it's a thousand dollars an acre underpriced what it's selling stuff selling up for there now. But man, I put so much love and attention into that place, and when it was all said and done, it was it was a showpiece for for sure. And um, I, you know, I was able to get into that with no money out of pocket. I had an investor that was that had belief in me that I could get in there and do it, and I did it, and. And it worked out great for for everyone. I was happy. He was happy. The seller was happy. The new buyer was happy. Um, so th- that's when you know every, everything goes goes perfect. It isn't always like that. But be, get creative um, in in that aspect. And uh, again, you know, I had to pay him interest. He basically loaned me my half to buy the property. I didn't have to go to a bank, and uh, it worked out really, really good. So. Yeah, there's there's definitely deals out there. They're 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 not as common as they maybe once were, or, or maybe they still are. And I just don't I don't see them. I kind of get blinded by it sometimes. And um, you just got to get creative. And again, I I look for stuff that nobody else wants. And when nobody else wants it, someone's willing to deal typically. And the old saying in real estate is, you make your money on the buy side. You don't necessarily make your money on the selling side. When you make your money when you buy it, that means buying it, you know, possibly below market value. And that stuff that's been sitting for a while, you come in and you can make an offer, you know, that's that's good for you. And if it's been sitting there long enough and that person needs to sell or wants to sell, sometimes they'll they'll let go of it for a good price. And and now you can come in and make those improvements and and you get to enjoy it for a while too. And don't don't forget the value in that. So if today all you can afford is 50 acres, that property is going to appreciate, period. It's going to go up in value. And in the meanwhile, you and your family, your kids and your friends or whoever are getting to enjoy that property, that that's value, man. I mean, that's that's oh, yeah. recreation that you're not, you know, it's not like so so I compare I compare owning hunting land a lot to golfing. I don't golf. But my friends that do, they spend a lot of money on golf. It blows my mind what it costs to go pay green fees at one of these nice golf courses, rent a golf cart. You're going to drink a six pack of beer. You're going to eat there that day. You walk away from there. You just spent $400. Yeah, they've got some memories, but they have, there's nothing of equity there. You, you know what I mean? You walk away and okay, your score went down by a point or whatever. I don't even know how golf scores work, but whatever. You, you see what I'm saying? But with land, 
yeah, you got to make that payment, but you're getting the enjoyment out of it. But that property is also going up in value uh, and you're you're forcing appreciation by going in and doing improvements and gathering this history. To, to me, it's 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 a it's the it's a hobby that pays you back, if, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I mean, I, I just have 15 acres here, but it was it's the best thing I ever done was was buying this property. Um, I've definitely get my money's worth out of, out of the the enjoyment I have uh, just messing around on it. And and hopefully, uh, you know, at some point I'll, I'll get to add to it. But so, yeah, you, you got me distracted over here as well. I'd lost my spot because the wheels were just spinning as you're talking about some of these creative ways to, <laughs> to buy property. Because uh, because there's 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 some around me here to uh, that, that could still be bought, I'm sure. Man, I, you know, I, I've, I've seen people before like. Yeah, here's a here's an example. So and and this is, you know, for you, like you, you there's some land around you that can be bought. And, and I'll just make up some numbers here. You own 15 acres and you've got a neighbor down the road that owns 15 acres and there's 50 acres in between you that's for sale. But neither one of you can afford the 50 acres. Both of you might be able to afford 25. You know what I mean? So, so put a deal like that together, figure out how to get creative. Is there another neighbor that could possibly you know, bite off a little chunk of that chunk of that with you. And now I can go from 15 acres to 40 acres and, and didn't have to buy the whole, the whole 50. If, if, if that, you know, you just got to get creative sometimes figuring out. <laughs> we, I'd said earlier, you can't buy property with, without a down payment. When you, when you, when you're doing this and you build a good relationship with a local bank, again, remember I said they can be flexible and, and sometimes, it is possible to buy stuff with with no down payment once you've got that relationship established and they realize that you're the you're the real deal um and these guys that are buying and selling properties and are growing into something bigger you're going to do several land deals in your lifetime I, i've got a young guy um now he's i don't know exactly how old he's 26 27 years old i've sold him probably I think we just did where we're in the middle of one right now. He's buying one from me right now. Now he's not really growing. He just likes buying and selling. He likes buying these little properties going in and making changes and enhancements to them and turn around selling them. And then he'll turn around and I don't know what he spends that money on that he makes, but he'll turn around and go buy another little property. And and he's been very, he's been very successful at it. And there's been a couple of times I thought he's going to fall flat of his face, but he still managed to come out smelling like a bed of roses. I don't know how, but, but, but anyway, he, He's like 27, 28 years old and and he's I think I've sold him four different farms and over over the last four four years or so he holds them somewhere around a year or whatever. But uh he's built a really good relationship with the bank. When he calls me and says, "Hey Dave, I want to buy this piece of property or I want to go look at this." I don't even question whether he's going to be able to get the money because I know what a great relationship he has with the bank now because he's done the same deal with that same banker time and time again and and when when Lee the banker calls me up says hey send me so and so's contract over I know it's it's as good as a done deal and and I can go to that seller now and say hey this is a financing contingency on the, on this offer but you have nothing to worry about because this guy's done this time and time again he's he's good for it um, so so on that on that topic of, a few years ago an opportunity to come up for a group of us in Illinois. And uh, I'm not going to all the, all the background details, but we were, we were looking at this property. It was one of those situations where the seller was just ready to get rid of it. And it was like, it's worth this, but I will take this. And he named his price. So we, 
we answered it. And at the time, none of us had the money for a down payment, but we had done enough deals with the bank that we were able to call the bank up and say, hey, look, this farm is worth X, but we're able to buy it for this. Well, why do you think it's worth that? Well, because we know the market. Send your appraiser over here. And sure enough, the appraiser come over and it actually appraised for more than what we thought it was worth. Um, so the bank ended up loaning us 100% of the purchase price to, to buy the property. And we hunted on it. One of my buddies killed a, a Boone and Crockett on the on the property. It was a, it was a really fun property to have for a short period of time. And I thought we were going to own it for a long time. And and then COVID hit and things kind of changed. And we sold it in a moment of, I, I don't want to say a moment of fear, but in early 2020, no one knew what was going to happen. And someone come along and, and wanted it. So we sold it and we may have sold it a year too soon. I don't know. You never, you never know. But, uh, but anyway, um, that was one of those opportunities that were a great relationship with a banker after a while allowed us to do something that we couldn't have done without that relationship. So I, I, I hate to say never, yeah, but you, you got to build those relationships. You got to start somewhere. So, right. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> well, obviously as a real estate agent, I, I know, you're going to recommend using an agent to, to find and, and buy a hunting property. Uh, but, but why use a whitetail properties agent, man? So I, I will go back to my interview when, when I, when I went to work for whitetail, it was unlike any other job interview I'd ever had. There's some things, you know, just silly questions that you get an interview. There was none of those questions. Hey man, do you deer hunt? Yeah. Deer hunt. Well, you know, tell me about last year's buck, you know, whatever, you know, it was, Everyone that works for Whitetail Properties is is a deer hunter. And I say that. I mean, the company's gotten really, really big. I don't know everyone there, but man, we're all passionate about the outdoors. We are all passionate about land. And what's crazy about Whitetail is they don't look for real estate agents. They look for outdoorsmen and they make them real estate agents. And I was not a, I was definitely not a real estate agent when I got hired for them. So I think some of the negative con- connotations that come with with some real estate agents, and I, I don't want to say that all real real estate agents are bad by any means, but man, it's kind of like used car salesmen sometimes, you know, and I just I don't get that vibe from anyone that I work with, uh, if, if that makes sense. So I, I there's there's a difference in a guy that just loves what he's doing. And, and that's what we do, man. There's not a, there's not a better job on this earth for me than what I have. I I just feel like I'm where God wants me to be. And when you're in that kind of position, you treat people, right? I treat people the way that I want to be treated. And then that client always comes first. And again, I can't speak for all 400 agents in this company, but that is the, that is the culture and, and the, the the environment that they that they foster uh, at Whitetail, so probably not the answer you're looking for, but that is the reason why I would recommend us over other companies. Um, it's not about the sale in the end; it's about that client and making sure they get what they want and they're treated right. Um, and uh, that to me is more important than than that commission check at the end of the deal. Now. The great thing is when I do that, I get a commission check at the end of the deal and I'm going to see my family and, and enjoy the things that I that I love to do. But that really is secondary to, to treating people right and making sure that they're getting what they what they want and um, and that they walk away happy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's that's one thing that we often tell people about Whitetail Properties, because you guys are our longtime supporters uh, of NDA and, you know, even back when we were QDMA and. And that's not why I got you on the, this podcast episode, but, but, you know, you have been, y'all have been 
uh, big supporters of ours. And and one thing we've always you know told people about that relationship is, is as far as I know, y'all are the only you know recreational land company out there that that requires your agents to go through our deer steward program. So you know you mentioned that that the agents are passionate hunters, and you know they're all going to be uh, at least fairly knowledgeable on on deer habitat and you know what makes good deer habitat and so for somebody looking for a deer hunting property you know they they know they're going to get an agent that that has that knowledge and, and background so absolutely i'm sitting here in my in my office right now and i'm i'm looking at my my deer steward one and two certificates on the wall they're both you know with qdma's name on it and uh i actually took my deer steward one in in may of 2011 and I started with whitetail one year later. I didn't realize that until I just looked up at the at the date on that. So May of 2011, I was in St. Louis at Deer Steward One. That's back when you did them in person. Uh, not St. Louis in um, Springfield at, at Grant Woods' place. Um, one of my man, I made so many good contacts there. So so <laughs> Mark Kenyon was actually in my Deer Steward One class, and at the time he was this wet behind the ears kid. I don't even know that he was out of college. Maybe he was. And I remember we were meeting and talking and, and Mark is like, I said, what do you do, man? He said, well, I, I've got this, you know, this podcast. And I'm like, what the hell, <laughs> what the hell is a podcast? You know, I didn't even know what it was. So, uh, but anyway, now, now he's, he's kind of blown up and he's, he's the big, the big boy in town, but there are so many, so many awesome relationships made in, in that class. I just, I didn't realize it had been as long as long ago as it has. So almost 13 years ago, that's, that's pretty cool. But uh, yeah, it goes fast. It does indeed. Yep. <laughs> well, b- before we wrap this one up, I, w- I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a web show that that you're involved with uh, called the Kentucky Buck Factory. You've kind of mentioned it there in passing a, a couple times. Um, that's focused on you know fixing up a, a tract of of hunting land there in Western Kentucky. Tell us a little bit about that. What 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 do you guys got going on? I'm glad you bring it up because it it brings me back to a way to uh, we'll, we'll talk real quick. Um, let me give you a background on on the group of guys that own that property. I won't get into too much detail, but everyone there's there's nine of us guys that own that. I think it's nine, eight or nine of us that own that property, and everyone but one guy is a Whitetail Properties agent, um, either here in Kentucky or southern Southern Illinois. And um, we've we've all worked together. You know, so, some of the guys are newer, but we've all worked together seven, eight, nine years, ten years, something like that, and uh, we just become more family than friends. I would say we're, we're like a group of brothers. We, we fight amongst ourselves sometimes, but it's never, it's never too bad or bloody. And we just, we all think along. We, we just, we love the outdoors and, and we started doing some investing together and it kind of, it kind of ballooned into us buying in together on this property over in Hopkins County a few years back. And, uh, couple of the guys already owned the property, but they offered us some ownership and, and we, we bought into it knowing that it was kind of a long-term investment and fast forward to, to COVID again, I, I, like I said, everything circles back around. It seems like these <laughs> days to the pandemic and, and that big bump in land values. And in, in 21, um, we had a buyer coming to town that was, that was looking for something and it kind of sounded like the farm we had. And, um, just it kind of happened really fast almost too fast we almost regretted making the offer but the guy the guy's like hey would you sell this place and we're like yeah we'd sell it and we got together and put a number on it and uh 
it was a little over, it was just a little over 900 acres, I think. Um, had a, had a, a, a little hunting cabin on it, uh, like a pole barn style cabin on it. So we priced it to the guy and he's like, okay. And we're like, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe we, you know, we need to think about this a little bit more. And <laughs> the problem was we still needed a place to, to, to hunt. And um, if we sold that, we weren't going to have it. And just so happened at the time, Mark Williams and I had a property listed for the National Wild Turkey Federation over in Crittenden County. Um, it's locally known as Patty's Bluff. It's uh, just just under 950 acres. We had it listed and it had been under contract for for some time. And uh, matter of fact, it it had it had been under contract when the world was kind of falling apart and uh that deal ended up falling apart but when it fell apart land values are skyrocketing and our listing was coming up and it was one of those type deals we we typically don't buy farms that we have listed but we knew this listing was going to expire we didn't really have any other buyers or we didn't have any other buyers that were were seriously interested in it so we made an offer on it contingent upon us selling our other farm um and were able to get all that worked out. We sold the other farm uh, and we bought this one. People say, well, why'd you sell one to buy another one? Well, because it was a smart business move. And, and I'll explain <laughs> later. I'll explain why that was a smart business move. And then we'll get into more detail about the farm. And if I get to rambling too much, just stop me. Cause I I'm, I'm very passionate about this place and, <laughs> no, that's all right. and, and the future of it. So, so anyway, we, we sold the other farm and it was, it, the two properties are as different as night and day. The farm we sold had like a 13 or 14 acre lake on it, had hundred and something acres of tillable ground on it, had some really nice nice hardwood timber, had this little lodge on it, um, had a big shop there and we all loved it. I mean, we absolutely loved the place. We, we had, uh, had several, I had been involved in that property for nearly a decade. Um, just being friends with, with Mark and Steven, the two guys that owned it. And, uh, um, Mark and Steven were both whitetail properties agents. And, uh, anyway, we, we loved the place. We had had so many good memories there. Our, our state agents, Christmas meeting would be there every year. We'd have a Christmas party and the agents meeting there every year and all kinds of events, shed rally. I, and most people have probably heard of white Hill property shed rally. They put on, we would do that there and all get together and have a great time. So it was like, man, you know, all those memories. And, and we, we realized we can make those memories somewhere else as well. And all while, all while uh, benefiting our, our futures. So that's what made sense. We sold that farm and we turned around and bought this other property and I'll, I'll, you know, I don't want to get into the numbers of things, but basically we were able to buy this property over in Crittenden County for half of market value because there was a conservation easement on the property. And, and that's what I want to get into. That's one of those things you can look for to to lower your, your cost of entry into land. So we sold one 900 acre farm and bought another 900 acre farm for half the money. If, if that makes sense, literally half the money. Oh yeah. That makes and, sense. And it made all the sense in the world. And, and, you know, some of our guys were like, well, but, but if it's got this, if it's got this conservation easement on it, how does that impact us? You know, when the day comes for us to sell it. And I want everyone to understand this property was not bought to turn around and, and sell, but, Anytime you buy something like this, there has to be an exit strategy and, and it is a long-term exit strategy. You know, I don't know when the sale date will happen, but it will happen at some point in time. I'm hoping when I'm ready for retirement will be when this place sells, you know, and, uh, but we're like, Hey, look, 
you know, we can we have the ability and the know-how to 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 turn this into a rough, old, neglected, abused, and abandoned property because that's what it was. Uh, a gentleman had donated it to the NWTF uh, for tax write-off. Uh, prior to that, it had been an ATV park, um, and I don't care what anyone says. That's not good for the environment. <laughs> Ride them and enjoy them all you want, but man, the damage it does to property is is you know erosion and and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, it was actually when when the gentleman that donated to the NWTF had. Um, gotten a permit to uh, turn the northern end of it into a rock quarry. So they're going to be they're going to be mining limestone off the property, which, you know, would have been a mess as well. So in in that process, they had gone in and clear cut a bunch of timber and and kind of made a mess of that. You know, there's there's areas where there's three foot deep ruts in the ground and it's just not a very it is not a desirable property the way it sits today it, it just isn't there's 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 no big deer on it um i don't mind to tell you at all there's no big deer there's not a lot of turkeys on it there are a lot of raccoons though i got into those over the weekend doing, <laughs> doing a little trapping but uh but that's it you know there's a lot of washed out hillsides and and um the it had been a west vaco property at one point in time so they had planted some pines um there's a little over 100 acres of plant plant pine plantations there's there's some sycamore plantations or planted west vaco planted any kind of tree that would grow fast um so they could cut them down and and make paper out of them so there was nothing desirable about this property so part of our part of our plan was to one brand the property and that's the buck factory so the buck factory this is the third rendition and it will be the last rendition of the buck factory um there was a property previous to my being an owner in trig county that that was uh, called the buck factory and then the hopkins county farm was the buck factory and and now this however we're branding this property um the logo will be stamped everywhere on this place whenever whenever we get done and it'll be the last one that that we that we name that uh it'll it'll go to the new owner whenever that may be but in the meanwhile we're going to enjoy it and then uh and develop it um so we we started this series on on youtube called building the buck factory and it chronicles you can find it um not to be too much of a self-promoter but whitetail agents if you search white if you search whitetail agents on YouTube, there is a playlist um, called Building the Buck Factory. And it goes all the way back to the very beginning when we when we were first buying the property um, through the, the habitat um, improvements we've done thus far, as well as documenting the, the building of our lodge. Um, so we're building a, a, just a beautiful, beautiful lodge there uh, to use while we're there hunting to to host our families, our friends, whatever. Um, we're also going to offer that to the public at some point um, uh, as an Airbnb um, for, for family reunions or corporate events or, or that sort of thing for larger gatherings. I think it'll sleep. I think it sleeps 28 people, something like that. It's a two stories, got beautiful overlooking the beautiful view overlooking the Cumberland River. It really is breathtaking. Um, it's called Eagle Point Lodge at the Kentucky Buck Factory, and uh, it just so happens that our our LLC that 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 we own prior to this was called the American Dream, and when we joined, we joined a 
some other guys together and not to get into all the details, but it became the new American dream. Um, so it's the new American dream LLC that owns, that owns this property. And what's really cool about this um, is the day that we were there kind of ground truthing this purchase, nothing, nothing is done with the conservation easement. And we can get into detail about what all entail is entailed there, but the conservation easement, you can't develop the property except for where they've outlined you can develop it. And there's, it's actually in five tracks and the track right in the middle is where we want to build our lodge. And there was a two acre approved building lot up on the ridge on Patty's Bluff overlooking the Cumberland River. And uh, me and Mark and Justin are standing up on the ridge. Those are two of my partners. You'll see them a lot in the Building the Buck Factor series. But we're standing up there. We got the our buggy parked there. And and man, we're like, wow, this is beautiful. You know, this if if we could clear out a spot to build a lodge here, this is this is just perfect. And um while we're standing there, this this bald eagle, man, and this is no joke, flies by at eye level. And and we're just like, you gotta be kidding. That's a sign, man. And well, you know, everyone tries to make things a sign, but it was just the coolest moment to look up and see that bald eagle just gliding down the river, literally at eye level, because we're way up on this bluff overlooking the river. And uh with the with the company being called the New American Dream. So we immediately we immediately dubbed that area Eagle Point, um, and uh, that's where Eagle Point Lodge come from. So anyway, um, uh, back to the back to the conservation easement. It's it's there are all different types of conservation easements. I I learn if if any of the listeners are familiar with the Wetlands Reserve Program, for example, that is a conservation easement. Uh, it's a very strict and, and restrictive conservation easement, but it allows a buyer to buy a really good piece of hunting property at pennies on the dollar, literally, because the the owner of that property has already been paid out by the federal government to, to put it into that conservation easement. CRP, that's a conservation easement. Uh, you're limited to what you can do on that ground that is enrolled in CRP. The thing about CRP is it's a temporary conservation easement. It will expire at the end of that contract if you don't renew it. WRP is either a 30 year, I think it's a 30 year or permanent, meaning it's always, and there's no, there's no going back on that. It's in a permanent conservation easement. Well, the Buck Factory is in a permanent conservation easement and it's, it's pretty restrictive on what we can and what we can't do. The waterways are all protected, so we can't go in and cut timber along the river uh, or along the creeks or several creeks that run through the property. There's a buffer along those that are that are designated as, you know, no, no development. We can't go in there and cut timber. We can't clear. We can't do a lot of things in those areas. However, outside of that, man, we've got a lot of leeway. There's a lot of things we can do. We can we can manage our timber. Now, we have to have an approved timber management plan, but we would do that anyway. Uh, so we had a forester come in and, and write us a timber management plan. We had a biologist come in and, and write us a very in-depth wildlife management plan that worked around the conservation easement and they are tickled to death. The NWTF is tickled to death to have us there because we're, we're doing the things that never were, never were done. They had, they had a habitat plan in, in, in place as well, but no one ever did anything. It was just sitting there. People were trespassing all over it. Um, nothing was happening. The roads were eroding away. Um, and, uh, we've, we've gone in there and, and we're just getting started. Um, some of the programs we're doing, I mentioned earlier, we're doing some patch clear cuts where we're clearing out those pine plantations. They're non-native pines. They're not supposed to be there. And one thing we lack is early successional uh, 
habitat. So we're, we're going in and clear cutting those pines and we're going to allow that to start to naturally regenerate. Eventually, we'll probably control that with fire um, so that we we can, you know, basically for now on have that, you know, highly desirable early succession type stuff. And then some of those sycamore plantations, um, you know, it's just a monoculture of, of sycamores and some of them were clear cut. 15, 20 years ago and all came back from stump shoots. It's, it's a mess in there. Um, so we're, we're enrolling that into that patch clear cut and eventually that we're going to convert that into a wetland. Uh, it's right down on the river. Um, so we'll actually have a wetland impoundment there. So hopefully we'll have maybe some duck hunting opportunities where we can control the water in there, plant it. So that'll be sometime down the road. But in the meanwhile, you know, we're going in and clearing those and, and for some time, there'll be some early succession there. Um, we're clearing some other areas for food plots. Um, we're trying to maintain the roads and, and get them in better shape. So they're not washing down in the river. Um, and you know, there'll be some hinge cutting that's going on there to create some more cover and we're just going to manage it to the best of our ability and, and try to turn it into, I, I, I have no doubt that in five to six years ago, it'll be, it'll be the most well-managed piece of property in Kentucky. Um, because we've got the, we've got the, the manpower and the, the, the know-how to, to make it happen. Um, I'm really excited. I, I don't know if you can tell, I'm, I'm <laughs> so dang excited cool. about it. Uh, killed my first buck on there last year. Um, we are, uh, we're trying to manage to a high level. Um, we've got some older bucks on the property, but we don't really have any, any, uh, showstoppers. We've got one really nice buck this year that we think is a four-year-old, um, and he made it through muzzleloader season. So we're we're excited to see if he can make it through the last last little bit of the season to see what he turns into next year. Um, he's a great deer, but I think he can be really good, really good next year. But we've been we've been kind of concentrating on on harvesting some of these or well, does for one. We we set a goal of twenty-five does this year. Um, I think I'm at six or seven does off that property and I've kind of run out of the, I've kind of run out of willpower, killing willpower (laughs) late in the season. I'm leaving it up to the other guys to finish things up. I don't know that we're going to hit our goal, but I think we're at, I think we're at 17 does this year and we've killed um, three bucks. All, all three bucks were four years old or older. And I don't think they, I don't think they score 180 inches between the three of them. Um, They're just not what we want to be growing. And we all want to shoot bucks, you know, so we tried to target the oldest deer on the farm and and deer that just had inferior inferior headgear with the hopes that we can get our numbers more in check. Again, Crittenden County has one of the highest deer densities in the state. We want to try to get those numbers in check prior to some of these habitat en- enhancements, um, mainly because we just you know, we know as we add more food and we add more cover our deer density is likely to go up. So we're just trying to get to a level that we can, we can maintain um, without seeing things explode because we want a surplus of resources for the deer. Um, and uh, hopefully, hopefully we could we reach that goal. Um, but uh, anyway, lots of, lots of big plans. I, I'd love it if you guys could join, join along and, and follow along and watch there. Like I said, it's, it's Whitetail Agents. It's a YouTube channel. The playlist is Building the Buck Factory. A lot of there's a lot of good content. Austin uh, Austin Lamb is our camera guy, and he follows us around. Uh, follows Mark and Justin around a lot, and, and films their their real estate business. But every time we have something going on there at the Buck Factory, he's there to kind of keep uh, keep tabs on it. Puts together videos. I, they're putting out content, you know, every every few days. So 
Well, good deal. Yeah, we'll, <clears throat> we'll definitely be sure to put uh, the link to that that YouTube playlist in the show notes. And uh, I know I will definitely be following along, seeing, keeping up with uh, what you got guys got going on. Uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be excited to to see how that all plays out. And uh, yeah, now you got my my wheels spinning. I'll be thinking about ways I can I can uh, add some land here in 2024. <laughs> so, Brian, uh, let, me, let, me, let me bring up something here, and I, I don't have a whole lot of details yet. And I just thought I probably should have asked you if it was okay, and I guess you can edit this out if it's not okay. But uh, so one of the things we're doing, obviously, this lodge is is super nice. The farm is nice. One of the ways we're trying to, I guess, make this makes sense is we want to, um, and again, I don't have a lot of details for this, but this is something that is in the works. Um, And I'm not going to name any names yet uh, of who we're going to have there, but we're going to do some, some really in-depth high-end, I guess, experiences, I'll I'll call them. And, and some of the things we want to do is like habitat improvements. We want to bring in some some well-known folks, you could probably guess of some of the folks that might might be having there, but uh, bring them in for a couple, three days uh, where we're going to put you up in the lodge. We're going to feed you the best food you've ever had. I'm sure there's some clips of some of the meals we eat, but Mark makes the meanest ribeye you've ever had in your life. Prime rib, uh, um, Chateaubriand, as he likes to say, um, it's basically a dang a dang roast made out of a cow's tenderloin but, um, <laughs> but anyway we'll feed you really good there'll be drinks and entertainment and and then you'll get some some in-person instruction some some really you know we're thinking 15 to 20 students something like that so it'll be a real small intimate type deal where you're spending two two and a half days something like there that you're going to get to tour the farm um, learn from experts in whatever field. Uh, and uh, obviously we're going to hit some, some deer type stuff because we're deer hunters, but we're looking at doing some other things. So I would say if you're, if your listeners are at all, um, intrigued by that and, and they want to learn more, they can reach out to me and I can get them on a, on a mailing list once we've got some more information. But, uh, that's one of the things we're going to be doing and, and we're going to be doing it, doing several of those a year. Um, we're thinking some habitat, maybe some shooting sports, uh, archery or shotgun type sports. We're going to have a five stand sporting clays there. Um, so a lot going on, a lot of big plans. We're, we're putting the final touches on the lodge now. So we're trying to wait until everything is landscaped before, before we really nail down dates and, and details. So, um, anyway, that's, that's coming. I, I didn't even think about that until we got to just about to finish up. So no, that's, want, that's all right. You want to yep. cut it out, feel free. It won't hurt. Feelings, <laughs> no. no, that's all right. Like you said, they can, they can reach out to you then, I guess if they need, uh, yeah, want some more information or like you said, get, on, <laughs> get, get on a mailing list, to uh, be kept up to date with all that. I'm a really easy guy to find my phone number and email address is everywhere. If you want me to give that email, I, I'd be glad to, um, but uh, yeah, go ahead. He's a guy. So you can email me. It's dave.skinner at whitetailproperties.com. Or you can even, I'm not going to put my phone number out, but if you want it that bad, you can hop on whitetailproperties.com and it's and my cell phone is listed on there. So I'm, I'm a really easy guy to get hold of, um, but would love to, would love to talk to you and give anybody more details about what we're going to be doing. I won't have all of them yet, but, It'll be coming, uh, and I think it's going to be. A, it'll be a great time, and you'll get on there and watch some of the videos. And and uh, I, I hate to turn this land buying podcast into a buck factory podcast, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, that's uh, that's what we got going on. 
Well, good deal. Well, Dave, man, I, I appreciate your time. I, I definitely didn't intend to keep you this long, but <laughs> hey, I uh, enjoyed every minute of it, and and think, uh, yeah, you covered covered a lot of ground here. So I, I think it'll be good for anybody out there listening that maybe interested in uh, you know purchasing their their first hunting property. So yeah. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, hope you and and your family have a, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Same to you, Brian, and all you guys with NDA. We we sure appreciate what you guys do. And like I said, I enjoy the I enjoy the podcast. And uh, you know me, man. I, I love me some NDA. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. We appreciate the support for sure. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Dave Skinner. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to, uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review, you know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter and uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.